Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. What the truth? You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here are your hosts, Rob Dalrymple and Vinny Angelo. Hey everyone, welcome in. We are uh, going through the New Testament in a year, and today begins the book of Acts. So we're going to jump in there. But Rob, we have a problem right to start off. I bet you didn't know this. Yeah, we're, we're mortal enemies right now. Well, no, the Warriors are my second favorite team. How do you choose that? How do you have a second favorite team? It's easy because they don't ever meet in the finals. So you <laughs> have one over the other. It just so happens that history, like, like the 49ers and the Patriots, it's clearly number one and number two, but it's never yeah. been a conflict. And Epic uh, battle. So, I, you know, yeah. Anyway, last night wasn't fun, but better things. It was a great night was, for yeah, you and awesome. yes, for all the crude Boston fans. <laughs> Anyways, so we're, we're jumping into the book of Acts. We've done the gospel so far, and we talked about how there's similarities between Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We call them the synoptics, and then there's John, which is kind of its own thing. But when we did go through the Luke study, we actually, I I think there was one night where we read the intro to Luke and the intro to Acts. And we do that when we talked about Theophilus. Um, So what, you know, what, what kind of relationships do we have going here to remind our folks between Acts and the rest of the New Testament and the gospels? Yeah, let's start with Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, and read that again. You want to read that? Sure. All right, go ahead. Acts 1, 1 through 3. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them for 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. All right, so, I mean, the first thing that we have, of course, is the, the relationship between Acts and Luke, and that it's the same author, written to the same individual, telling you the story of Jesus. And now, it's like, okay, in my former book, I told you about all that Jesus began to do and teach. And now, I'm going to tell you things, all the things that he did until the day he was taken up. And then after that, how the Holy Spirit had given orders to the Holy Spirit, um, to the apostles whom he had chosen. So, Acts is this continuation of the Lucan story, or the story of the Gospel of Luke. And I think it's important to recognize the fact that it's this continuous story. So that's the beginning of, of its relationship. So it is a story and it reads differently. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's definitely connected to the gospels. And if you're reading left to right, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you read these gospel stories. They, they, they read like history, but they, they read differently. They, mm-hmm. you know, there, there's something special happening. You get an ax and there's definitely that theological element, but it reads almost like a history book, like it's, uh, it's chronicling something. Is it just history, though? Not at all. So, yeah, when you do a study of the books of the New Testament, you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four Gospels. Then you have the epistles of Paul, and then you have the epistles of Peter, James, John, and Jude in the book of Revelation. And then Acts is this historical text in the middle of it all, kind of bridging from the Gospel story to the story of the New Testament. And it does. It sets the context a little bit for the letters and the foundation. What's going on is Paul goes to the Roman world, he writes this letter and this letter and this letter, and this would be in Acts chapter 17. This be, you know, he wrote, writes this one here, this one here, and, that, and that's good. But it's a theological history. It, the reality is all history is ideologically driven, right? No matter what historical book you're writing, if you're writing about the Civil War, the reality is how are you going to condense four and a half years of, of history into 400 pages? And who's telling that story as well? Yeah. So whenever you're telling even that story, you're deciding to include this story, but not that mm-hmm. story. And you, in fact, you can only include a, a small fragment of the stories, let alone can you even include the things that actually led to the Civil War. So the reality then is all history has this theological or ideological motivation. Why are you writing this and why are you telling this? Why did you select those stories and not these stories? 
Uh, why did you include this and why did you not include that? When you look yes. at the book of Acts, you notice, for example, that you have nine chapters dealing with Paul's imprisonment in Jerusalem and Caesarea and then off in, into Rome. Nine the book's only 28 chapters long, and you basically have nine chapters, the middle of chapter 20, and then Paul's travels to Rome in chapter 28. Something's going on here. Luke is giving an extensive account of Paul's uh, imprisonment and what's happening with that. So then the key thing I'd start with by saying is, Lord, the book of Acts is framed with references to the kingdom of God. So we reference this in chapter one, verse three, that you just read a second ago, and says uh, he was over a period of 40 days, he was speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. But then when you go to the end of the book of Acts, Acts 28, verse 30, notice that Paul stayed in a rented house two years, verse 30 and 31 of chapter 28. He stayed two full years in his own rented quarters, was welcoming all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness, unhindered. So the reality then is the book of Acts is framed with references to the kingdom of God. That's what's going on. And it's kind of showing God's purposes and uh, are continuing in the life of the, of the New Testament people of God. But we call this the Acts of the Apostles, but it's not even, it doesn't really follow the Apostles. You, you have the list of the 12 Apostles in the Gospels, and then you realize, wait a minute, I don't know anything about Bartholomew, I don't know anything about Judas, where, where did, not Judas Iscariot, Judas, not Iscariot, where, where'd these guys go? You only know about Peter and John from chapter one on, and then you know about Paul. So very much it's a theological history, and we need to clue into what's Luke's theological goal and the, theological objective to understand the book well. Okay, so basically when you use the term theological history, what you what you mean is anytime we see these speeches or these events that are captured, there wasn't a stenographer there taking everything down. We don't have a court reporter who's documenting everything. That's not what we should expect. What What is there is true, but it's not capturing things from a purely objective, I don't want to say objective, but you know what I'm saying. It's mm -hmm. not just the, the camera on the side of the street picking up information. Right. Yeah, Paul's speeches. If you read them in the book of Acts, it might take a minute to read it. Mm -hmm. There's no way he spoke for a minute. Acts 17, all... when, when he's at Mars Hill, that yeah. event wasn't just a few sentences he went on. He was yeah, probably exactly. there. He was there for a while. Having yeah, this you can imagine so. Yeah. 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 Okay. And well, he spoke long enough on one occasion, a guy fell out a window, falling asleep, fell out a <laughs> exactly. window and died down below. <laughs> yeah. You know Paul's going to talk for a long time. <laughs> yeah. And he's that yeah. preacher says, hey, one last thing. And then like for the 45th yeah, you know, time, yeah, one, one more thing. thing. One more time. Yeah. 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 So, okay. So uh, you mentioned the kingdom of God. Let's mm -hmm. remind the congregation, the congregation, you know, uh, let, let's remind uh, the audience, what is the kingdom of God and how does that play out within the book of Acts? Do we actually see that terminology used throughout the book of Acts or uh, how, how yeah, do we you, see it? Interestingly, I think we, we talked about this the last, in our last episode with Mary Mae Thompson, the kingdom of God's absent from the gospel of John, essentially is one or two references there. And the book of Acts is framed with, with reference to the kingdom of God, even though, again, this is the most popular topic of Jesus in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, or what we call the synoptics. So the book of Acts is framed then with references to the kingdom of God, but then it's relatively absent. You have like a couple of references here and there, I think earlier in Acts chapter 28. But what's interesting is it's actually almost relatively absent from the, the letters of the New Testament. So mm -hmm. a, they're either assuming that you know what we're talking about is the kingdom of God, or I mean, Paul talks about it, when I think in Romans 14, things like that. But the kingdom of God then is defined as it's the totality of God's work in redeeming and restoring creation. It's Ultimately, the restoration of God's presence. So Eden was where God dwelt. He brings Adam and Eve into that garden presence. And that's the goal of scripture now, once Adam and Eve get expelled, of restoring God's garden presence to humanity or restoring humanity to God's garden presence. That's what the temple is in the Old Testament. Moses gets a tabernacle. God dwells in it. 
Solomon builds a temple, God dwells in it. Jesus comes along and says, as we discussed in John 1, 1 through 18, I am the, the temple presence of God. Uh, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And now the Holy Spirit comes in the book of Acts and indwells all believers, making us the temple presence of God. So the kingdom of God then has come in Jesus. And we've discussed this before. And Jesus is its king. It's, it's where God reigns. And it's extremely important to understand the fact that it's the kingdom of God as opposed to the kingdoms of the world. And the kingdoms of the world are ruled by the devil, ultimately. Ask, if you bow down and worship me, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. So here you go. And Jesus comes along and says, no, I'm the king of kings, and the kingdom of God stands opposed to the kingdoms of the world. And this will become a major issue in the book of Acts, as we'll discuss uh, here soon. So it's come in the person of Jesus. It's also a missional thing because we are the image bearers of Christ, filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, who are called to take God's presence and person and image to the nations and to make him known. So I think that's, I hope that summarizes it well enough. Yeah, yeah. We've talked about this over the series about how the kingdom of God is often pitted against the Roman world. I, I want to say Warren Carter talked about that. How would we relate the the kingdom of God to the Roman empire, you know, in Acts or even, you know, today from an applicational standpoint, how does it relate to the empire and the nations of, you know, our world? Yeah, huge question that let's not talk about it too much right now because we could spend the rest of our time on it. But it's certainly something that we have to continue to address as we go through the, the New Testament. So as N.T. Wright says, the gospel is that Jesus Christ is Lord, and that means Caesar is not. And that means, and the way I like to explain it is, and no Caesar is, or maybe adding further meaning, that means Jesus is Lord and you're not, and he's Lord and I'm not. Uh, power is not, military might is not, your, our, our vehicles are not, our comfort is not, our power our pleasure, our things are not, our house, our family is not. Jesus is Lord and nothing else is. And in Jesus, God has begun his reign. His kingdom has indeed come. So now what you see then is Acts 17 is just wonderful uh, uh, illustration of this. This is going to cause major conflict with the Roman world. And what's I think the way I would say it, and let's look at Acts 17 in just a second, is we are not establishing Christendom. Uh, was the, the church is not, a, okay, the kingdom of God's here, and we're going to establish a Christian kingdom, whether it's in the confines of Thessalonica, whether it's in the confines of Corinth, or whether it's in the confines of Rome, or whether it's in the prospect of the American experiment, right? We're going to come to this land and establish the new Jerusalem here. We are not doing that. We're proclaiming in these cities and throughout the Roman world, and obviously more than the Roman world, that Jesus Christ is Lord. And that we're to reflect his glory and image and establishing communities within those cities that are then communities that are organized around the public confession of Jesus Christ as Lord. But those communities are not thereby national entities. They're international in all of its dimensions. So Acts 17 says in verse one, they traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, and they came to Thessalonica, which is Thessaloniki, modern day Greece. It's in Greece. Uh, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And that, of course, becomes important. They always go to the synagogues first. As was Paul's custom, he went to them and for three Sabbaths, 15 days, Saturday, next Saturday, the following Saturday, uh, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I'm proclaiming to you is the Christ. Now, the word Christ means, well, it's a Greek word. The Hebrew is Messiah. And the English would be the anointed one. It's a title for the king. Jesus Christ is the king. Now, some of them were persuaded. Okay, that's the first thing. 
some of the people in the synagogues were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, along with a large number of God-fearing Greeks. Okay, now let's stop. In the synagogues, you could have a group of people called God-fearers. They're Greeks who have joined the Jewish religion. They're allowed to join the Jewish religion. They are treated as non-Jews unless, they, unless they've been circumcised. You can't eat with them. You can't do certain things with them unless they've been circumcised. If they've been circumcised, they can become Jews. And oftentimes it's the Jewish monotheism that's attractive. It's orderly, it makes sense. Polytheism of the empire is, has, has its levels of corruption. They see that. So they listen to Paul's message and, and they hear, hey, you Gentiles, you're in without getting circumcised. And you're on, in on an equal standing with the rest of us which is not the case in the synagogue. So those in the synagogue are like, what? You're letting those guys in on an equal basis. That's a measure of friction that we're going to continue to play out as we discuss the book of Acts and throughout, throughout the rest of the New Testament. The Jews have a, a hesitancy for what Paul's saying because he's saying you Gentiles are on an equal basis with us. Mm -hmm. Some were persuaded and they joined in. A large number of the Greeks of the Gentiles were persuaded. Obviously, they don't have these inhibitions that keep them came out and a number of leading women which is important because mm -hmm. luke is writing to theophilus a roman official in rome to say there were a number of these leading women which indicates probably romans roman mm -hmm. individual uh, women that were, that were there but the jews verse five becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace so in other words they went to the marketplace where it's well known that uh, mob-like individuals are there they're thugs and they get a bunch of the thugs together. Now, it's important to recognize that Thessaloniki is a, a free city in the Roman Empire. They have a status in the Roman Empire that they cannot jeopardize. So the leading officials are going to go, hey, what's going on? So they get a mob together and set the city in an uproar. And they attack the house of Jason. They were seeking to bring them out to the people. Now, Jason is where the church was meeting. So the Christians would meet in the synagogue on Saturday, then they go to Jason's house, which is apparently right next to the synagogue. And they were gathering together and they would continue the teaching of the gospel. And after three weeks, they kick them out of the synagogue. And now they're only teaching in Jason's house. Well, they rush into Jason's house, uh, figuring that they're, they're going to find Paul and Silas at this point in time. And they don't. They formed a mob, set the city in uproar, attacking the house of Jason. And they were seeking to bring them out to the people when they did not find them. They began dragging Jason and some other brethren before the city officials. Again, it's so easy to read this and just kind of, okay, I'm just reading this. This is a cool little story. This is not a cool little story. Mm -hmm. This is really serious stuff. I mean, who knows what they would have done to Paul if they would have found him there. And Jason is in serious trouble right now because the, the story is these men are causing trouble in the city. And look, we got an uproar going on. I know it was a very smart move in the Jews to go to the, to the city center and get the thugs at the marketplace and cause a, an uproar and say, mm -hmm. see, this uproar is because of what these guys are doing. Mm -hmm. So uh, verse uh, six again, when they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have upset the world have come here also. And Jason has welcomed them. And they all act contrary to the decree of Caesar, saying there's another king, Jesus. They stirred up the crowd and the city authorities who had heard these things, and when they had received a pledge from Jason and the others, they released them. Hmm. And Jason's pledge is, I'll keep my eyes on Paul and Silas. So I'll vouch for them. If, something, if these guys do something wrong, I'll pay. Okay, so serious charge. Now, Paul and Silas sneak away. They went down to, by nightfall to Berea in verse 10, and they eventually arrive uh, down in Corinth uh, later on. So this is a serious situation that's going on. So the, 
the gospel is ultimately undermining imperial culture. If you go back to Acts 17 for a second, there's three charges here. They've upset the world. They're saying, contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there's another King Jesus. Let's start with the last one. They're saying there's another King Jesus. That means they're acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, and that means they're upsetting the world. So, and we can talk more about the Roman Empire was structured with Caesar and the emperor was put in power by the gods mm -hmm. to keep the order of the empire. And so if you're speaking against Caesar, this is very problematic. So this is a very serious situation going on there. And this is a threat to the empire because of the implications that Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not. And what do we, what do, we do with this? Mm -hmm. This is going to lead into a discussion that we'll have in the book of Romans. And we're probably going to be able to hopefully be able to speak to Michael Gorman again, who has just written a new commentary on the book of Romans. Because many people read Romans 13, and we won't address it now, as saying, oh, you should submit to your governments, because that's just the way it is. God instituted them. And that's probably not a very good reading of Romans 13. It's like, well, yeah, for the most part, but at the same time, if they're not doing you good, then we don't submit. So the idea then of the Christian community comes in as a threat to the local religion, the local economy. You could look at the story in Philippi where Paul comes in and casts a demon out of a girl, out of a woman who is mm -hmm. making money for, uh, for others. This is serious economic re repercussions. Now, what are you doing? You're taking our economy away by casting out this demon there. And then in Ephesus in uh, Acts 19, 23 through 41, this is a massive uproar. And great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Paul's like, hey, let me go in there and see if I can't call. Like, no, Paul, you cannot go in there. Because if you go in there, you will not come out. So you got to understand the fact that this is serious consequences and the serious message of the gospel and what it means and how it threatens the imperial powers that be. Yeah, but just to drive home that point, that charge in Acts 17, 7, they are acting against the decrees of Caesar saying that there is another king, Jesus. This is treason in a sense, mm -hmm. De mm -hmm. declaring you're a Roman citizen, declaring that someone else sits on the throne. This is not merely a theological claim. When we read, especially the letters that, you know, Jesus is Lord, we interpret that as merely a theological decree, but there's not a separation of church and state in the ancient world. No. All those things are entwined. The Caesar not only is the Lord as the the president, uh, he's the king, he's the boss. He also is uh, deified. He's going to sit in the pantheon of the gods when he's uh, uh, when he dies. This is a, just a much bigger claim than yes. merely believe Jesus. So you can go to heaven when you die. This is not, yes. you know, that, that's why, you know, that's not the thing that that's ticking people off when Paul and these guys are preaching. It, it's very political. And, right. And remember, you cannot even begin to separate religion from politics in the ancient world and how much these were intertwined, and the whole culture had come to... We look at it and go, oh, this is just a pagan religion. Mm -hmm. It's like, no, this is a cultural thing mm -hmm. that almost daily life is regulated about maintaining the order of the Roman Empire, and that includes religious activities that are fully political. Now, I don't know how much you remember your Greek, Vinny, but there was, there's two Greek words for, for other, or translated here as another. Mm -hmm. What Acts is not saying is, is there's another king. Well, there's, there's like Caesar and then there's Jesus. There's another king called Jesus. He's saying, no, there's another king, meaning you're not king at all. And that king is Jesus. Yeah. And that king is Jesus. Mm -hmm. And therefore Caesar is not king. And that is treason. Mm. So that's right. Wow. So going back to, you know, the opening of the book in chapter one, Acts was written by Luke 
to Theophilus, the, right. this gentleman, the, the same Theophilus that we met before. Right. Yes. And so we know from the Gospel of Luke that Luke carefully investigated everything from the beginning, including eyewitnesses. And now it appears that Luke begins to, to join Paul's movement. So if you start reading the book of Acts, you're going to get somewhere in the middle of the chapters, 13, 14, and 15. And all of a sudden, Paul's, the author's going to say, and then we went here. And you're like, who are, who's we? All of a sudden, now the author clearly joins the caravan. And sometimes uh, Paul and Silas went on to here. You're like, oh, that means Luke stayed behind. And so you can kind of see where Luke is mm -hmm. by when he uses the first person pl uh, plural pronouns. We did this, we did this. Mm -hmm. Oh, and then mm -hmm. Paul and Silas went on to do this. Now, as a result of that, these we passages where Luke is present, he spends a lot more time describing them because he knows these personally because he was present there. And so he spends more time talking about two weeks in Philippi than he does a, a year and a half in Corinth because Luke was with him in Philippi, but didn't go down to Corinth with him. So, yeah, so Luke's an eyewitness. He's traveling around. Again, it's theological history. It's not just, okay, there happened this, this happened this, this happened this. There's a theological motivation that we're going to kind of get to more as we proceed also. Okay, so what would you say that the goal of Acts is? Um, we, we've done that with each one of the, the gospels so far. We said, hey, this is what Matthew's doing, Mark's doing, John's doing. Uh, what's Luke trying to do here? And is that different than what he does in his gospel? Uh, ultimately, no. And I think the fact that Luke knows about the book of Acts and what he's going to do there actually influences what he says in the book and the gospel of Luke. He reads the Holy Spirit as central to the story of the coming of the kingdom of God. Go through the gospel of Luke. A good assignment is just to note how often Luke makes reference to the Spirit. It's incredible how often he makes reference to the Spirit, especially if he's got Matthew and Mark in front of him, or at least Mark in front of him, and Mark doesn't have all these references to the Spirit. But now, Jesus is continuing on in his ministry, and again, the book of Acts might be better named something other than that. We'll get to that in a few minutes. But in Acts chapter 1, it says that uh, I wrote about everything that, that Jesus began to do and teach, that's Acts chapter 1, verse 1, until the day he was taken up. And then after he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. So now I'm telling you about the acts of the Holy Spirit through the apostles whom he, had, he, you know, he showed himself alive, many convincing proofs, and he spoke about the kingdom of God. He's actually describing the book of Acts there and not the gospel of Luke there. Only the first part of, of verse one, only the first part of verse one is actually describing uh, the gospel of Luke. So he's telling us about how the Holy Spirit is empowering the disciples to go to the nations. And again, really important because we think, oh, this is the apostles who are going to the nations. No, this is God's people. All God's people are being empowered by the Holy Spirit to go to the nations. So let's read this story as though you're involved as well. Like we're anointed by the Spirit next to you and we're called because your sons and your daughters will prophesy and includes us. We are called to be empowered by the Spirit and take the gospel to the nations. Mm -hmm. So it would not be appropriate then as our, our titles of the books, if you look in your Bible, they usually say it's the, the Acts of the Apostles. Right. Uh, that's not going to be the best way to, to actually title the book, right? No, the title, according to verses 1, 2, and 3 of chapter 1, it's the Acts of Jesus through the Holy Spirit who's empowering the Apostles. You could say it's the Acts of the Holy Spirit, but really it's the Acts of Jesus. He, he continued to do these things through the Holy Spirit. And who then calls the apostles themselves to go off and take out, take the gospel out there. So it's, it's the acts of the Holy Spirit and it's not, uh, or the acts of Jesus either way. It's not the acts of the apostles. Cause as I mentioned before, after chapter one, only Peter and John are mentioned. Mm -hmm. And then they drop out of the picture and it's Paul from then on. And so it's not that you're not hearing about all the apostles. So it's kind of a misnomer. 
Yeah. Yeah. Also, kind of a sidebar on that, I was challenged once, I think it was in seminary, when we were doing like a New Testament uh, study, and the the professor said, read every sermon or speech in the book of Acts, and what is the point of it? Mm-hmm. And, and every time, I don't think we're going to get to this tonight, so I think we're uh, not giving it away, but every time Peter or Paul gives a sermon, the point of the speech is the resurrection of Jesus. Yeah. Believe that this happens. And that's the means by which, because he was resurrected, this goes back to our John study, he was rector- resurrected and he has to go away. And therefore he could send his helper, his paraclete, uh, all the things we talked about in uh, John 14, 15 and 16. Yeah. And the resurrection of Jesus is proof that what I'm telling you is true. The, re- the resurrection becomes that point of, of saying, and the story I'm telling you is a legitimate story. So when it comes to the Jewish people and says, okay, hey, the Christ had to suffer and die and rise again. And that's exactly what happened. So let's go back and read our Old Testament this way now and realize, oh, it does talk about a suffering Messiah. Mm-hmm. And that only makes sense because who's going to want a suffering Messiah? No one is. But when you see the story of Jesus and then he really did suffer and then he really did rise from the dead, you're like, I guess it really is about a suffering Messiah. Mm-hmm. And then to the Gentiles, the Romans, all of a sudden you're saying, He's the king, and we know he's the king because he rose from the dead. Hmm. And you killed him. The Romans killed him ultimately, but God raised him from the dead. So yeah, the resurrection of Jesus is central to the argument of the New Testament for yeah. that reason. Yeah. So, you know, we see the the story of Jesus, the life of Jesus, the, the work of Christ, and now it's carried out through the apostles. Then. Exactly. So let me show you an interesting verse on, on this topic. And this is kind of I do this in my course on biblical interpretation at times, because I think it's so important to understand. We talk about the Bible as Christological. And what we mean by that is that the story is ultimately reflecting about Jesus. So when we go to Luke chapter two, we'll look at Luke and then Acts 13. So Luke chapter two, you see this man named Simeon in the temple in Jerusalem. And he was told that he would not die until the Christ appeared to him or Mm -hmm. until he saw the Christ. And so now Joseph and Mary bring the young baby to Jesus. Verse 28 says, he took the child into his arms and he said, look, I can die. <laughs> I think it's kind of funny. Now I can die in peace. Verse 29 and verse 30, my eyes have seen your salvation, which you prepared in advance in the presence of all peoples. Verse 32, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. Well, that's a quote from Isaiah 49, verse six. This child is the Christ and now I can die. And he is quote, a light of revelation for the Gentiles. So interestingly, Simeon already sees this message going out to the nations. It's not just for the Jews, it's for the nations. And Isaiah 49 is like, you know what? It's too small a thing for you to be my servant and bring back the Jews. I'm going to also send you to be a light under the nations hmm. or, the, or the Gentiles. Now we skip now to the book of Acts. And as we mentioned already, Acts, Acts 13, Paul's protocol, and this will continue in the book of Romans also, was to go to the Jews first. And that makes sense because in every city he goes into, A, the gospel goes to the Jews first. Jesus went to the Jews told this Phoenician woman, you know what? I'm here for the Jews and don't take food from the, from the Jews and give it to the dogs. And she says, yeah, I just want a crumb. Even the children eat the dog, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. Mm-hmm. Okay. You know what? Cool. I'll, I'll go ahead and heal your child. Uh, and we, that's not an exception. There, there's a number of times where Jesus goes to the Gentile people and, and brings mm-hmm. healing, but ultimately the ministry is to the Gentile, to the Jews first, and then to the Gentiles. So in Acts 13, now Paul and uh, Barnabas, they go into the synagogues, they preach the gospel for a while, and then they reject the gospel, ultimately, and some of them believe, but most of them reject the gospel. So now Paul and Silas have to explain, okay, well, let me explain to you what we're going to do now. And it says in verse 44, Acts 13, verse 44, the next Sabbath, nearly the whole city assembled. Now, 
that's not going to make the Jews happy because you have all these Gentiles in here hearing the word of God. And Paul's like, hey, these guys can come in free of charge, just have to repent and believe in Jesus. So there's a tension point here. When the Jews, verse 45, when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began contradicting the things spoken by Paul and were blaspheming. This is Luke's uh, take on it, right? Verse 46, Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, you know, it was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first. But since you repudiate it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turned to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us. I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles. Mm. It's like, wait a minute. Simeon quoted that passage and applied it to Jesus and said, this was fulfilled by Jesus. So we read the Bible Christologically. And all of a sudden, Paul's like, actually, that passage is about us. Mm. Like, well, how can he do that? And the way he can do that is because the story of Jesus is now being carried on through the Holy Spirit by God's people. And so all, guess what? Isaiah 49, verse six, it's also about us. And I mean us, like Barnabas and Paul and Vinny and Rob and whoever's listening to this, the, the three people that are listening to this. Yeah, right. <laughs> My mom and... Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening to the podcast. We really appreciate it. And hopefully it's blessing you. Hey, do us a favor. If this is something that you are digging, if it's helping you, if it's uh, encouraging you, take a second just to like it, give it a review, give it you know, five stars if you think it's five star worthy, uh, share it with your friends. And we just want to get this out to more people. Uh, this isn't something that we're in for the bucks, but it's something that we want to encourage and equip people with. So do that, help us out. And now we'll get back to the podcast. You, you had mentioned how you use this principle when you teach uh, your biblical interpretation classes. Yeah. So I'll use Acts 1-8 as launching pa passage uh, to talk about a couple things. First, observations, but then also this passage, and I'll, and I'll read mm -hmm. Acts 1-8. Uh, Jesus says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. Uh, this is a passage that, I mean, this is really setting the trajectory of the book of Acts, but this is also that question of what is descriptive and what mm -hmm. is prescriptive, which are important words to know when we're interpreting the Bible. Mm -hmm. Descriptive means it's describing what happened in the text, mm -hmm. and it's not necessarily applicable for everyone today. An example I use on this is when you look at Joshua and Jericho, it, that's a descriptive passage. It's not saying that when you have your enemies, the people of God are to march around you know, the, the facility that the enemies are in, you marching around seven times and their building will fall down. That's, that, that's not what it's telling us to do. But there are passages that are prescriptive. It's, it, it's prescribing to us what we should do as well. It carries on. It was true for them and for us. And this is one of those passages. This is not merely for the, the apostles. This is something that like we are to carry on this as well. We are to be the witnesses of Jesus in all the world. It's hmm. interesting. I'm not sure I would fully say it the same way myself right now, but we don't not need to have a discussion of biblical wait, hermeneutics. Wait, so you do believe that we should march around city? Uh, city no, no, no. I'm not sure I would say, because <laughs> it was prescribing, you are to do this. So I know it's, I'm not sure I would agree that with the way that you use descriptive and prescriptive. I would use descriptive and prescriptive, for example, in the gospel, in the book of Genesis, for, as an example, say, mm -hmm. your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. God's mm -hmm. not prescribing that. It's describing what's going to happen. So that I do, mm -hmm. oh, sure. male patriarchy is being prescribed by God. Actually, no, it's the curse. And he's going to say, you guys were supposed to rule together as mm -hmm. one equals. And now your desire is going to be to rule over your husband, but he's going to rule over you in an evil, you know, onerous way. It's not prescribing that this is the way it's supposed to be, which is what some people say it is. Sure. It's yeah. 
It's describing that. Yeah, I would agree with that. I totally agree yeah. with that. Uh, but mm-hmm. I, I would say, no, when you look at the marching around Jericho, you'd say it's prescribing that. It just isn't prescribing that for us and all, well, all times. It's no, prescribing it, it, that in the historical moment. Everything that's descriptive was prescriptive for that group. It's just a matter of does that carry on for us as well? Is the same principle carry? You know, is the same command carry on for people nowadays? Yeah, but that's why I wouldn't use descriptive and prescriptive then okay. in, in examples like that because descriptive is something. I'm just describing this. You know, the serpent lied, and therefore lying is a good thing because it's in the Bible. No, he's just describing what happened in the historical oh, moment. Sure, sure, yeah, it's yeah, not describing yeah. anything at all. So I would use it in yeah. those kind of contexts there. Whereas that's a prescription. It just isn't an abiding prescription for you. It was historically, okay. contextually okay. limited to a moment in time. Okay, fair enough. Yeah. Cool. What do we do with Acts, in, yeah. especially yeah. in the context, and and how does that set the trajectory for the uh, the rest of the book in terms of what the apostles are doing? So yeah, in one sense, people want to take Acts one a and say this is the way that you would structure the the book of Acts. They're going to go from Israel to in Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth, and geographically, by the way, Jerusalem's the city, Judea is the region in which Jerusalem is in. Samaria is the next region above it, north of it, and then the ends of the earth would include the Roman Empire. Now, note, the ends of the earth is a phrase used applicable to the Roman Empire. Mm-hmm. It doesn't actually include China, and it doesn't actually include the Orient, which they knew about. So it's not like they, those, oh, I didn't realize there were people there. But nonetheless, it is to, to Rome. To Rome's the goal. Uh, note, of course, the fact that they spend eight chapters or more, a little more than eight chapters in the book uh, in uh, Jerusalem and Judea. They don't really go anywhere. A very brief note about Samaria, and then ultimately you get pretty quickly to the ends of the earth. And even that isn't very descriptive because, as we said before, that you get eight and a half, nine chapters of Paul's imprisonment. So it's mm-hmm. it's not like this, okay, we're following the gospel going out here. Now, Luke is more of a theological agenda, but that theological agenda does have this geography co- going along with it. One of the things, however, that's really important to understand the fact is this. In the Old Testament, the Israelites were to remain a unique people group the Jewish people, we might want to call them that. They have their laws and regulations of what marks a Jew, circumcision, food laws, and Sabbath keeping, which obviously Mm -hmm. is more than just Sabbath keeping, but the keeping of all the festivals. If you God-fearers want to become Jews, you must get circumcised. You might want to come and keep our festivals, and you might want to keep our Sabbath keeping. That's the distinguishing nature between the two. The idea was distinct Old Testament context. If Israel now is obedient to God's laws, remaining a distinct entity, the nations would come to it. So it's Isaiah 2, 1 through 4. The nations will flow and stream uphill to Jerusalem. The nations were to come to them. And then they assimilate the nations into this Israel-Jewish identity. Hmm. In the New Testament now, you therefore go out to the nations. So the food laws, as we'll discuss later on, and of course we did in the gospel, in the book of uh, Gospel of Mark, the food laws are now fulfilled, as Jesus might say. So therefore, now the Gentiles are clean. You can welcome them into the community. They don't have to get circumcised, which becomes a great debate. But Paul's ultimately saying they have to get, you don't have to get circumcised, which means you can eat with them because their food's not unclean and they're not unclean people. And the gospel goes out to the nations. Now, in the Old Testament way of doing things, you would have this nationalistic entity that had obviously problems because it viewed themselves as better than everybody else. Okay, we follow God's laws. You guys don't. You're dirty pagans. We're obviously good Israelites. As we saw in the Gospels, that problem actually included tax collectors who were Jews who worked for the Romans and included prostitutes and included other outcasts and sinners who don't follow the Jewish laws the way they should. So it was only it was exclusive. 
in the New Testament now, the danger, of course, is the fact that when you go out to the nations, you're going to become like them. That's always this danger that how do you take the gospel and join in a com- into a community? And we're going to do some studies in the book of Acts here where we're going to interview missionaries and talk a little bit about this. Okay, the gospel is to go to this nation or this people group. You need to learn the language. You need to learn the culture. You, you need to immerse yourself in that, that group, that culture and everything about it. And you take the gospel into that and you show them a way within their own cultural context of the, the way of Jesus as the light of the world and as the way, the truth, and the life. And the danger, of course, that you end up becoming so much like them that you no longer have a gospel that's distinct. So that's something that we have to always bear in mind that either way, Old Testament way of doing things, New Testament way of doing things, you're going to have this uh, problem. I put them and maybe give you an anecdote of any, uh, or in those listening, you know, as a pastor, you're sitting, you're talking to your church, you're like, okay, what you don't understand sometimes, especially in older congregations is they do things a certain way and they expect everyone coming in new to do things that their way also. Mm-hmm. Now they think, oh, we're a really loving community. We love everybody and we, we welcome them. It's so great to see you. But ultimately what you're willing to do is to say, well, we love you as long as you assimilate mm-hmm. into our community and you become like us. You like our music. You like the way we do worship. You like the way we do our communion. You, you like the way we do classes. You like the way we do outreach. You must like those things. What we often are not willing to do is to accommodate them mm-hmm. and say, let's, let's embrace your culture, whether it's your food or whether it's your music, because you can worship Jesus in Russian. You can worship mm-hmm. Jesus in mm-hmm. African. You can worship Jesus in American. And so we struggle with that because we actually create our own context and our own cultural context. And then we assimilate people in, but we don't accommodate them. And that can become the part of the problem also, though. So what we see, even though nowadays you, you would use that example of, uh, you know, even in American context, we have, it's like Baskin Robbins, man. We have so many options for what you want to get at church, right? Uh, it, it's not an in and out model where you just have a couple of things. Like we, we have this, this huge thing. Um, that is the issue, though, even the first issue that really plagues the early church in, in terms of a, a racial conflict and, and that sort of thing. And that's what we yeah, see in the book of Acts. Yeah, this you really have to set the context because this will set the context for the letters of the New Testament and what happens after this. The gospel goes to the nations, but as it does, as I said, they're not, set, they're not establishing Christendom. They're not imperialists. They're missionaries. Mm-hmm. So they learn the cultures, they learn the customs, and then they bring Jesus into that. The problem was when you go to the Roman world is that the Jewish religion is not, not well respected. And so this Christian way of doing things is undermining the gods of Rome and the Roman way of doing things. And as soon as you undermine Caesar as Lord, remember in the Roman empire, you can practice other religions and the mm-hmm. Jewish religion was a legal religion. And these other religions are like, okay, but you have to give Caesar first and the gods of Rome first, and then you can have whatever other gods you want. Mm-hmm. Now, the Romans kind of allow the Jews to kind of, all right, we, we get it. You don't have any other gods, whatever. But the Jews were looked down upon because you're ultimately undermining the well-being of the empire because mm-hmm. the gods who put the emperor and Rome in place to keep peace are not pleased with you. And so early centuries of Christendom, when Christianity was persecuted, second century, third century, and the beginning of the fourth century, it was persecuted when a calamity happened because they were to blame. Mm-hmm. because you're not recognizing the gods. And so they would make an edict. You must recognize the Roman gods. And so you have to come before a Roman, a Roman official 
and say the Roman that the emperor is Lord and deny that Jesus is Lord, because that's why we have problems in this world. So there's the clash amongst the Romans. The other thing to remember, however, is that the early Christians believed themselves to be Jews mm -hmm. and they were practicing the Jewish religion. Well, they went to the Roman world. They're not just inviting people into join Christianity as if it's a thing. They were asking them to follow the Jewish religion. I think we need to stop there real quick. We've talked about this before on the epi this different episodes. Yeah. It was not that there was Judaism and Christianity. Right. Exactly. It wasn't it was the, the Jews nation. versus the Christians. They were Jews and there was different sects amongst the Jews. Christianity, Christians being one of them. These were Jews who were following Israel's Messiah. Yeah, and, and maybe we might not at the beginning of this movement even say that Christianity is one of the many sects. I think sure, yeah. Christianity is saying, no, we are the, the true Judaism, and the mm -hmm. Pharisees are like, no, we are. And so this, it's this inner faith debate and dialogue. But and from so, the Roman perspective, they would have seen them just as one yeah. of the, the groups. Yeah, but yeah, you're right. They, they thought they were, hey, we're just, we're, we're staying faithful to the prophets of old. Uh, and, and you see that like in the book of Hebrews and places, it's like, we're following along this tradition here. Yeah. Uh, this is not something new that's starting. Right. And then amongst the Jews, then you have this clash of saying, wait a minute, this is not what the scripture says. And so this is interfaith dialogue and interfaith debate. And you already have, Within Judaism, divisions over the fact that, well, we're Hebraic Jews and you guys are Hellenistic Jews. Mm -hmm. And the Hebraic Jews look down upon the Hellenistic Jews. Now, a Hebraic Jew is one who speaks Aramaic. It's not Hebrew. It's Aramaic. They live in Judea. They go to the temple regularly. They follow, they're more strictly following the laws of Moses. A Hellenistic Jew is one who lives outside of Judea. They're mm -hmm. traveling to the temple is seldom. It's rare. They probably wear Greek clothes. Hellenism means Greek. They wear mm -hmm. Greek clothes. They probably eat Greek foods and they speak even the Greek language or other, other languages. So you have within Judaism, a divide already amongst them. And you see this in the book mm -hmm. of Acts. In Acts chapter six, you're thinking, oh, you know, the Acts is describing the early church and it's perfect. And it's beautiful. Um, this is awesome. Well, you go to Acts chapter six, and this is where we get the rise of deacons from. Mm -hmm. And it says, verse one, at the time, the disciples were increasing in number. And a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews, the ones who live outside of Israel, who speak Greek, practice Greek customs, eat Greek foods, against the native Hebrews. And the word Hebrew here is Aramaic, ultimately, when it comes to language. Because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. Now, what you can expect is the fact that the Hebraic Jews had control in the Jerusalem church. The Hellenistic Jews that were in there were like second class. And so the Hebraic Jews were like, well, let's make sure our widows get food first. And if there's anything left for the Hellenistic Jews, well, maybe there is some, but they were excluding them. They were ignoring them. It's an ethnic division mm -hmm. within class or classification with them. So the 12, some of the congregation of disciples said, you know what? We don't have time to neglect the word of God in order to serve, wait on tables. So they elect seven men, all of whom basically have Greek names mm -hmm. and say, you guys, Stephen, Philip, Prochorus, Nikon, or Tom, uh, Taman, uh, Parmenas, and Nicholas. And you guys make sure that your widows are being cared for and that there's an equity within the daily distribution of food. So you have these kind of div divisions there. Now, note that many of the priests did in fact become Christians. It's nothing to, be, to bear in mind. So we kind of say, oh, Christianity and the Pharisees and the Pharisees were all bad. Acts 6 verse 7 said many priests mm -hmm. were coming into the faith. The word of God kept spreading and a number of disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. 
So these are the Pharisees. The Sadducees aren't coming in because they don't believe in resurrections mm -hmm. uh, or, or even God for that matter, depending on how you look at it. Yeah. Uh, but many of the priests were coming in like, okay, you know what? I didn't like this Jesus thing all along. I did shout crucify, crucify, but there's no question that he rose. And I can see, and I see the transformation in these people's lives, what they're doing. They're doing what the law says. They're, there's not a needy person among them. That's Deuteronomy 15. And they became Christians. So ultimately, and this is going to become really clear in Acts chapter six and seven with the stoning of Stephen, mm -hmm. there ultimately were two key points that the Christians were making that were in conflict with the Jewish people. First off, and that is Jesus is the temple of God. Mm. Well, that means you don't need to go to the temple necessarily, which they were still doing, because that's just a good thing to do to keep peace in the, in the community, but you don't need sacrifices. And when you recognize that the temple is the center of the Jewish religion, this is what the entire society is about, you realize, okay, this is the big problem here. Um, but they're also speaking in, against the law of Moses. That's the second thing. They were speaking against the law of Moses. That probably refers to either there's no more sacrifices that were necessary or that they had changed the Sabbath or that they're eating with Gentiles. One or all of the, of the above of those things. So that's why Paul says then in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23, he says, we preach Christ crucified to the Jews as a stumbling block and to the Gentiles, it's foolishness. Okay, for the Gentiles, it's like, what is Jewish? What, why would I do that? What, you believe in a Jewish Messiah who was crucified by Rome? Uh, yeah, right, not going for it. To the Jews, it's like, hey, Jesus was a cursed Messiah, and he rose from the dead, and we welcome Gentiles into this community, and you don't need to sacrifice any longer because he was the perfect sacrifice. Like, yeah, I don't know about this Jesus thing. Really important to understand the conflict that was there and what Christianity is trying to do in the midst of all this. So earlier when we referenced Acts chapter one, verse eight, we said, this is the commission. This is what they are to do to, you know, eventually go to the end of the earth, which we would say, hey, it's the, the Roman world. Uh, but the disciples actually don't do that. Yeah. They don't go to the nations until they're forced to, you know, especially what we see in, what is that, chapter seven, eight, nine, where we start seeing persecutions happening with Saul, you know, Paul, yeah. uh, and that sort of thing. Yeah, it's very interesting. Hey, go ye therefore to the ends of the earth, from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. And they don't go. I mean, you have to read the book of Acts. They, they don't go. You're six chapters in. Stephen has a speech in chapter seven. And then Acts chapter eight begins with Paul persecuting the Christians. And they were forced to flee. Mm -hmm. And you almost look at that as the hand of God saying, okay, if you're not going to go, I'm going to make you go. Mm -hmm. They only go and leave Jerusalem and Judea because of a persecution. Yeah. Now, again, it's the struggle with the Gentile thing, though. So let's go to Acts 10 for a second. So Acts 10 is a famous story and famous episode. I remember Jesus had declared all foods clean in uh, Mark chapter seven. Thank God but, for that, right? Yeah, thank God. But the I disciples, love crab. Uh, uh, I think pepperoni pizza was on his mind. <laughs> yes. But uh, uh, the disciples aren't doing this. They're still eating kosher foods, Jewish ways of doing things. All right. So a man named Cornelius, who's a Roman centurion uh, up in Caesarea. Caesarea is the, the capital of the province. For, that's where the Roman forces, that's where Pilate's headquarters would have been. The Roman governors, Festus and Felix, that's, they would be in Caesarea. So he's, he's a centurion. He then has a vision, which he's told, send for Peter. Hey, look, the Lord's heard your prayers. This is great news. So send people to Joppa and for a man named Simon. And notice Peter's still going by his Jewish name, mm -hmm. not his more Greek name. Uh, he's staying with a man named, staying with yeah. a tanner named Simon. All of a sudden, they send a delegation to go see Peter. Well, now Peter is not going to go. He simply isn't. This is a Gentile. So Peter has a vision. 
Three times he sees the sheet coming down with clean and unclean animals. Get up, kill and eat. He's like, no, I can't get up and, uh, and eat because A, even the clean animals, you can't just kill and eat. You have to drain the blood properly and make sure everything's done right. But I'm not eating, eating these unclean animals. Do it, Peter, three times. All of a sudden now he hears these people knocking on his door. Hey, what's going on? They're like, hey, here's the deal. This, this guy named Cornelius is asking for Peter to come to Caesarea and meet with him. He's like, oh, I guess that's what the vision means. In fact, Peter goes on to say, when he arrives in Caesarea, he's like, you know, verse 28, he says, you know, you know how unlawful it is for a man who's a Jew to associate with a foreigner or to visit him. Mm. Yet God has shown me that I should not call any man unholy or unclean. Now mm. stop for a second. The vision didn't say anything about people being unclean. Mm-hmm. It only said, don't, you can eat these foods. Don't call unclean what God has made clean. The point of that, however, is that in the Jewish world, the Gentiles were unclean because they ate unclean food. Mm. If that food is clean, then the Gentile is also. And that means their home is now clean because Peter would Mm -hmm. never want to enter their home. So verse 29, that's why I came without even raising an objection when I was sent for. So what do you want from me? Verse verse 30, Cornelius said, well, four days ago, I was praying and a man stood in shining garments said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard. Send for to Joppa for and invite Simon, who's called Peter. So I sent for you. Peter's like, oh, okay, cool. Verse 34. I certainly understand now that God now that God is not one to show partiality. Hmm. And he goes on to preach. And interestingly, the sermon that he preaches here is very similar to the Gospel of Mark, almost like a template for the Gospel of Mark. Not quite, but somewhat very familiar with the Gospel of Mark. And the reason for noting that is many think the Gospel of Mark was actually the words of Peter. Mark may have mm-hmm. wrote them, but it's Peter who yeah. was working with Mark. That's the source of the gospel of Mark. Nonetheless, Peter's now preaching the gospel to him. And so if you want to know the gospel, there you go. Acts 10, Peter's sermon to the people in Caesarea. And there's many people gathered in this house, by the way. And so Peter preaches a sermon in verse 44. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. And Peter's thinking, oh, what do I do? All the circumcised believers, that means the Jews, who came with Peter were amazed. This is verse 45. Because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also, for they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. Peter answered, no one can refuse the water for these guys to get baptized because they've received the Holy Spirit just as we did. Hmm. He ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. They asked him to stay on for a few days. That's awesome, right? Ah, now the apostles and brothers, chapter 11, verse 1, who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also received the word. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those who were circumcised took issue with him. Mm. Uh, explain yourself, Peter. In other words, this is like good news. No, it's this conflict. These are Christians mm-hmm. in Jerusalem who are like, what did you do? You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. Mm. And Peter speaking began speaking and proceeded to explain to them in an orderly sequence saying, well, I was in the city of Joppa. I was praying. God had the sheet lowered from the four corners of the earth and said, you know, get up, kill and eat. I saw all these four-footed animals and the voice said, get up, Peter, kill and eat. I'm like, by no means, Lord, trust me, guys, I was doing what we know we're supposed to. I No, I will not do that. I said, by no means, Lord, for nothing unholy or uncleanness ever entered my mouth. Hmm. He's defending himself to these Jews in Jerusalem, right? I also heard a voice saying, but the voice answered from heaven a second time, said, what God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. This happened three times. And behold, at that moment, uh, verse 11, three men appeared at the house in which they were staying, 
having been sent to me from Caesarea. The spirit told me to go with them without misgivings. These six brothers who were with, they went with me. And as I wasn't alone, guys, it wasn't, it's not like I was doing this on my own. They, they were witnesses. So verse 12, they went with me and we entered the man's house. Verse 13, they reported how he had seen the angel standing in the house and said, send for Peter. So I went, Peter will speak all these words to you. And so I spoke to them. And as I began to speak, verse 15, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them just as he did upon us at the beginning. And I remember what the word of the Lord said, John baptized with water, but you'll baptize with the Holy Spirit. Therefore, if God gave them the same gift as he gave us after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that could stand in God's way? When they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God saying, well, God has granted the Gentiles also repentance that leads to life. Mm. I'm like, oh, see, no problem. But what happens the next time Peter does something like this and people in another city or another location don't get Peter's explanation? Mm -hmm. You got tension. Mm -hmm. So you can see the tension. The tension was resolved because Peter explained to them what happened. And I got six eyewitnesses, meaning the total of us makes seven. We got eyewitnesses. They saw this. They spoke in tongues while I was, it wasn't my fault. And the Holy Spirit clearly did, and they believed him, but that's not necessarily going to be the case later on. Hmm. Uh, clearly going to be a problem. So this is a very helpful explanation then. Uh, we've talked about, you know, is the New Testament, is are the Gospels anti-Semitic? Uh, and, and we would say like, no, it's, it's not an anti-Semitic uh, book, and this is not an anti-Semitic religion, uh, being Christianity. Right. Although, again, we, whenever we say these things, we always have to clarify by saying, well, yeah, but it did become such. Yes. In the second century, mm-hmm. the Epistle of Barnabas is extremely anti-Semitic. Uh, John Chrysostom, extremely anti-Semitic. These are leading documents or leading individuals, early Christian movement, John Chrysostom's fourth century, fifth mm-hmm. century, and all the way through Martin Luther and all the way into the present day churches today. Also, yeah, anti-Semitism is real. The Catholic mm-hmm. Church had to actually apologize what, 1970, whatever, by saying, hey, you know what? We apologize to the Jews because we did blame you guys for the crucifixion. And actually, guess what? It wasn't your fault. Mm-hmm. And I think that's legit. We have to do those things. But here, so Acts 7, verse very quickly. And he says, and he, and he gives this history of the Old Testament story, kind of a, mm-hmm. a re, rehash of the Old Testament story, looking at the issue of the temple. And look, look, God appeared here and he got appeared here, not in the temple building, not in the temple building. Oh, look what's going on. And then he says in verse 51, you men are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, and you're always resisting the Holy Spirit. You're doing just what your fathers did, not our fathers, your fathers. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. In other words, they killed the prophets who predicted the coming of the Messiah, and then you killed the Messiah. You who have received the law as ordained by angels, and yet you did not keep it. And the answer is Stephen is Jewish and he's mm-hmm. arguing with the Jewish people, just like Isaiah did and Jeremiah did. It's this inner Jewish debate. And it's kind of like, you know, people of color can call one another a certain name that us white folks can't use mm-hmm. those words. Mm-hmm. That's, we just can't do that. And it's wrong for us to do that. So this is also one last point, And we'll finish up on this. It's not right then to speak of Paul's conversion. We read Acts 9 and Paul's conversion. By the way, when was Paul converted? On the road to Damascus. No, he wasn't. His transformation happens in Damascus mm-hmm. when he has Ananias lays hands on him, which I think mm-hmm. that's an important principle because God uses his people 
to bring the transformations. He blinded mm. Paul and blindness is never associated with transformation. Mm-hmm. He's blind. It's like being in the belly of the well for three days. You, you don't have the transformation until you come out, mm-hmm. right? Or Jesus being in the tomb for three days. And it's Ananias who lays hands on Paul and that's his transformation. Mm. Because the problem with saying it's his conversion was when you're Jewish, you're not Christian. Got it. And now we might you know, say that today. Okay, yeah, I'm not sure how much we're following the right gods or the same, the same gods. And that's up for, for discussion. But I don't think that we would say that at this time at all. Mm-hmm, these these mm-hmm. are Jews having a Jewish discussion, a Jewish debate. And the question is whether or not you're going to believe the way we're interpreting the scriptures or not. Once you come to the point where like, I am not going to believe in this Christ thing, then we'd say, okay, great. You are not what we might want to call saved. But you know, I don't like these evangelical terms sometimes. But it's Paul's transformation. This is an inner Jewish uh, dialogue and debate. And you can, I just want to sum up today for us to understand the tension that was really deep in the Jewish communities and then amongst the Roman communities. This is not an easy task for these churches have to take on. Wow. That was a ton of stuff. We didn't even get through all our notes. We got through half our notes for tonight. Uh, So we, yeah, we have a lot more to do on this one. So this is, this is going to be a fun uh, series. The book of Acts is long. Uh, It's got to be the longest book in the new Testament, right? Um, I would have to say, I think Luke is longer. Is it? Okay. I think Luke has more words okay. than Acts. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but man, it, read through Why don't you book. go count them tonight? And I sure. will do that uh, in, your Greek in the program. Testament. Yes. Yeah. But <laughs> so read through this. And uh, yeah. if you've never read through Acts, this is probably one of those forgotten, neglected books. Yeah. Um, people don't know what to do with it. And just encourage you read through this over the next few weeks. And you're going to be surprised on how amazing it is. Mm-hmm. So, hey, everyone. Hope you enjoy it. Come back next week. Follow along. We haven't plugged the study guide that you're doing, your devotional. Mm-hmm. So how could they, uh, if people wanted to keep up with what you're producing on a weekly basis, how could they get a hold of that? Yeah, so we're providing a weekly study guide that goes to the books of the New Testament. Start with Mark, then Matthew, then Luke, then John, and now we're doing the book of Acts. You can jump in anytime. The study guides are available on the determinedtruth.com website under the blog or the Pathios blog site. Either way, you want to go with that. Or if you want that, email to you, then send me an email at rdalrymple19 at gmail.com, rdalrymple, and D-A-L-R-Y-M-P-L-E-1-9 at gmail.com. And I will go ahead and include you in the mailing. And so on Fridays before the following week, it's five days, Monday through Friday. And I provide a study guide and a devotional kind of to help you understand the text that you're reading. So maybe 400, 500 words per day. And then there's like a questions to ponder. Okay, hey, what do you think of this? What, what might we do with this? So it's made for small groups and discussions, but you can also do this as an individual. All right, everyone, have a great week. We'll catch you guys later. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Please subscribe to and like our podcast. You can follow Rob's blog at determinedtruth.com or purchase his books on amazon.com. See you next time.